0: Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. All across Mexico, people are celebrating the Day of the Dead. It's a holiday with indigenous ceremonial roots. It's one of the ways the larger population incorporates indigenous culture, but reverence and respect for Mexico's many indigenous peoples fall short in many other ways. Today, we'll hear about the uphill battle indigenous people in Mexico encounter to gain equity and respect from the government and the population at large. We'll get started right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The National Congress of American Indians is hosting its annual convention this week in Sacramento. A group of Native people from disenrolled California tribes came out to raise awareness of tribal disenrollment. As Rhonda Lavaldo reports, they're asking the Native rights organization and its tribal membership to listen to them. The
2: annual convention kicked off its General Assembly Monday afternoon, as a group gathered outside the convention center to protest tribal disenrollment. About 20 people advocated their cause to NCAI attendees who walked by them. They're calling on NCAI to listen to their stories on disenrollment. Cam Foreman explains why they felt the need to be there.
0: To say that you support tribal sovereignty, while well, you won't condemn the desecration of ancestors, the banishment and abuse of elders who are sacred, And that's what NCI says, to protect the Indian Child Welfare Act, yet children are being denied their right to belong, banished from their tribes' homes and communities. It's not a membership issue. It is a civil and human rights matter. And it needs to be condemned. This has gone on for too long. This is just a small percentage, a tiny bit of the 11,000 that have
2: been
3: disenrolled from their tribes' homes and communities.
2: Meanwhile, inside the convention, during the First General Assembly, NCAI President Fawn Sharp conveyed the message that the conference was focusing on tribal sovereignty issues with the theme, Defending Sovereignty, Since 1944. This year's annual convention was going to be all about defending tribal sovereignty. That was before Castro versus Huerta. That was before so many decisions coming out of the U.S. Supreme Court. We knew that we had to gather all of Indian country to strategically talk about tribal sovereignty. So that's what this session is all about and focused on. Protesters disagree and think the concept is disingenuous because they've been officially ejected from their tribes. The sovereignty theme is taking center stage at this year's convention, a sovereignty run from Oklahoma to California ended in Sacramento as the convention started to raise awareness on attacks on tribal sovereignty, as well as a recent reinstatement of Jim Thorpe's 1912 Olympic wins. This is Ronda Lovaldo for National Native News.
1: The National Congress of American Indians told National Native News it does not have a comment to provide at this time regarding tribal disenrollment. The Speaker of the Navajo Nation Council faces disciplinary action after a photo surfaced of him allegedly intoxicated during a recent family trip. As Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports, a bill has been introduced that would strip him of his leadership position.
4: The photo shows Navajo Nation Council Speaker Seth Damon slumped over and appearing inebriated while sitting in front of a gambling machine in Las Vegas. The image, which Damon called unauthorized, recently circulated on social media. He told the council that he was in fact intoxicated and in a statement said he accepts responsibility for the incident and apologized to the Navajo people. But he stopped short of stepping aside as speaker and will instead let council delegates decide his fate legislation introduced last week would put damon on indefinite unpaid leave and require the approval of two-thirds of the council if it's passed chairs of four council committees will rotate as speaker pro tem damon was on a family vacation to las vegas for the indian national finals rodeo to support navajo athletes when the photo was taken he said he was not on official navajo nation business at the time and spent no tribal funds Damon leads the tribe's legislative branch and is in his second term as speaker. He's running unopposed for his seat on the council in the November 8th election. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff, Arizona.
1: And I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
0: NATIONAL NATIVE NEWS IS PRODUCED BY KUWANAK BROADCAST CORPORATION WITH FUNDING BY THE CORPORATION FOR PUBLIC BROADCASTING
5: THERE'S NO REASON TO LET UNCERTAINTY ABOUT THE ELECTION PROCESS KEEP YOU FROM VOTING THAT'S WHY AARP CREATED STATE SPECIFIC COMPREHENSIVE ELECTION GUIDES LEARN MORE AT AARP.ORG SLASH ELECTION GUIDES AARP SUPPORTS THIS SHOW Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations.
0: Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A survey from the non-governmental group Global Witness finds Mexico to be the deadliest place for environmental activists. The group found out that of the 200 activists killed worldwide in 2021, 54 activists were killed in Mexico alone. Among them is Tomas Rojo, a Yaqui water rights defender in the Sonora Desert. Other surveys include a UN Special Rapporteur on indigenous people's rights that has repeatedly called out Mexico's government for a serious pattern of abuses against indigenous activists. Today on Dia de los Muertos, a holiday with strong indigenous roots, we'll get a status update on the Mexican government's relationship with its indigenous people. We'll hear from indigenous organizers from Mexico and experts, but we also want to hear from you, our listeners. Tell us what you think. Do you have questions about policies or issues facing indigenous people in Mexico? Please join us, one 800 2848 That's also 1-800-99NATIVE. You can also leave a comment on our social media pages. That Twitter handle is 1-800-99NATIVE. Joining us first from Oxnard, California is Arsenio Lopez. He is the executive director of the Mixteco Indigenous Community Organizing Project. He is Nusave. Arsenio, welcome to Native America Calling.
6: Well, thank you. Um, glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Arsenio, please set the tone for today's conversation by explaining to our listeners how being indigenous in Mexico is different than the indigenous experience in the United States. Can you can you do that for us?
6: Um yeah, so in Mexico, I think, on my own experience as indigenous person. Um, I probably, what I remember, I um, didn't really learn about what is that really means to be an indigenous person Uh, from schools. I just kind of like uh, remember just growing up quote-unquote normal with my family speaking the indigenous language, which is different um, uh, languages than Spanish. So, but never question about what is that about, being a new savvy or being a Mixteco. Uh, when I came here, I uh, think it's the first time that um, through my experience as farm worker and through facing discrimination and racism is when uh, it was kind of like a call for me to go into learning about my own history. Uh, what does that mean to be a Mexican indigenous person? And then later I, I learned about native communities of this side of the border. Like I heard about, you know, reservation and tribes and, and, and that kind of like that, uh, uh, different kind of um, uh, communities. So I guess um, in Mexico, there's like, later I learned that it's been in, in, uh, a real in, intention on just making quote unquote everyone's equal, that nobody was being divided. race um, and just being, uh, you know, uh, learning about Spanish in general, uh, but what that really uh, for me means or uh, impact uh, on that to where indigenous people in Mexico is kind of like uh, erasing or it's just shadowing, um, just can make us invisible within the the Mexicans ourselves.
0: Arsenio, how old were you when you emigrated to the United States?
6: I was twenty one. Um I was <laughs> I was already old. <laughs> um yeah, so um uh yeah, I, I grew up there in, 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 in Mexico, mostly in, in Oaxaca, in the state of Oaxaca. I left my, my village, uh which is a very small rural area at the age of thirteen to uh pursue my uh education. But um when I was in the bigger cities, um, still I, uh, as a Oaxaqueño myself, um, kind of like never questioned it, why my family was speaking a different language. And to be quite honest, I didn't really know that in Oaxaca there were other, like, probably 16, 17 other indigenous languages. Uh, I thought it was only like the language of my parents and my grandparents, my community, which is Mixteco, that was the only kind of like the other different uh, language. But I was so into like just learning, not learning, but just speaking Spanish because that was what our, our families. I grew up always listening to my grandma stories um, telling me to not speak Spanish because I'm sorry, to not speak Miseco because that was a, limited, a limitation for, for me, for my future.
0: Mm hmm. So you're 21 yeah. years old, you emigrate to the U.S. Is it common for other Mixteco people and other indigenous peoples in Mexico to emigrate to the U.S.?
6: Unfortunately, <laughs> yes, it's pretty common. I um, Again, our uh, communities, um, indigenous people, uh, feel kind of like push obligated or like push, um, like we have no other options. Um, I, I remember that my families and my communities were immigrating before coming to the, the side of the border here. We were already going to different states within the Mexico country. Uh, we were um, our, our, My grandparents went to Tapachula Chiapas for the cotton industries in the 30s, 40s. Then in the uh, sugar cane industry and in Veracruz. And by the uh, 50s, 60s, they were doing... Our, um, the agricultural worker uh, worked in the uh, northern part of Mexico, which is Culiacán, Sinaloa, for the tomato industry. Pretty early in the 70s and 80s, a large numbers of uh, people from my communities and also the Miseco uh, region of Oaxaca, they were uh, coming more towards this side of the border. Uh, I think that really increased in terms of numbers through the Bracero program. Um The Bracero program i think was that kind of like guess uh uh workers uh kind of visa program from from u s a government that some of our grandparents um got that experience to cross the border and come uh for the agricultural work in california and my, uh, in that case so it's, it's pretty common that a, a large numbers of indigenous miscos people and other indigenous communities um come uh, and they leave there. Their home, uh, hometowns, homeland.
0: And Arsenio, for for you and and other Mixteco people here in the U.S., um, do you feel welcome by by the by the indigenous people, by the native people here in the United States?
6: Well, the reality I think is that um, we're not aware about the indigenous native communities at the side of the border. Um, when I was learning English, and I kind of like started doing my um, some classes in history, the way that it, the the history of indigenous people this side of the border was taught, oh, oh, the way I learned, it wasn't in a, in a way that I was thinking these people were already disappeared. They were not here anymore. Um, it was like years later that I learned about the presence in our, uh, in, in the case of where um, I, I live as in Oxnard, which is uh, Ventura County, there's a Chumash land here, and years later, I I was uh, introduced to the Chumash communities. It wasn't until then, I think I'm, I'm talking to you, when uh, I came here in 2003, so the first time I started interacting with the Chumash communities um, was probably in 2012, 2013. Uh, and that was because through the, the work that I do, that uh, community um, uh, work that I do through my organization, that I got to like learn about the presence of uh, native communities here, and I think unfortunately, many of us Mixtecos, we don't have, we don't really know that there's are relatives, indigenous people these sides of the border, unfortunately mm-hmm. uh, and there's still a lot of uh, work that needs to be done, I guess, or I think in terms of building that relationship. Uh, Creating that uh, kind of connection and, yeah, relationship, I think, is, is something that is missing and, and um, it's important to be aware of it. And I think as an organization right now, that's something that we started doing more in, intentionally on, on creating, uh, like reaching out, you know, up to our, our relatives that lives in the sides of the border.
0: Arsenio, let's talk more about your organization, Mixteco Indigenous Community Organizing Project, and specifically, what issues facing people in Mexico do you want people here in the U.S. to understand or pay attention to?
6: Um, well, uh, there's sort of a lot of, uh, uh, I think I would just bring the, the one um, big issue that in Mexico I feel that that's a reason why we, we live our homelands is economic reasons better opportunities for education for our, our families, children. Um, I think uh, one of the uh, thing that we need to be really, be really aware is that many of the indigenous people that comes from Mexico, we come from very rural areas, uh, very uh, far from having access to where it's um, the, uh, if we want to go to like a middle school, kind of getting that education or high school, like university, not even talking about university. That was kind of like dream. That was that is, is, is kind of impossible for for our families to be to be able to just see ourselves going to the universities um, in, in in Mexico because of all what it takes, you know, uh, financially for parents to afford that for their their children. So I think um, uh, education continues to be a big um, uh, kind of like problem uh, in terms of having access to that higher education. Uh, there is not really like um, job opportunities. Uh, and I mean, one of the things that I think we face very com- uh, similar uh, as we as a migrant communities, immigrant people, uh, indigenous people is language barrier. And um, Mexico, if you don't speak Spanish, it's pretty difficult to uh, have access in, in in generally you know either to direct services to um, or to employment that uh, gives you that pay uh, to be able to afford the living wage and our living costs in our own country mexico so when you made it to this so that the border the similar situation you you face is Um, You know, you come, you work in agriculture, you're a farm worker in the case of the population.
0: Arsenio, I'm sorry, we're gonna have to take a break, but we'll be right back. (laughs) Tribal citizenship is easy to define. You're either a citizen or you're not. But identity is a bit harder to nail down. Marriage outside of the tribe, distant descendancy, and family lore all affect how people identify with native culture and it's easy to get wrong. We'll talk with tribal leaders about Native citizenship and identity coming up on the next Native America Calling.
7: Domestic violence is not traditional. Contact your local Indian health care provider calling 1 800 318 2596 or visit www.healthcare.gov-setlist-number domestic abuse. To learn more about enrollment period available for survivors of domestic abuse, violence, or spouse channel a message from Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service.
0: Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're getting a status update on some major political and social issues facing indigenous people in Mexico. We also want to hear from you. What questions or comments do you have for our guest today? Join the conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99NATIVE. We're speaking with Arsenio Lopez. He is the executive director of the Mixteco Indigenous Community Organizing Project. Arsenio, before break, you were comparing and contrasting a little bit between being uh, an indigenous person in Mexico as opposed to being in the U.S., and you talked about folks that emigrate to the U.S. in search of uh, better educational opportunities, better job opportunities, and and folks struggle with some of the same issues, such as language barriers. Anything else you want to add before we move on to our
6: next guest? Um, Well, I think the last thing that I think, just because of it, uh, one of... uh, I I really think it's a a, a chronic issue that indigenous people have been facing since colonial time um, is discrimination, is racism. Um, It comes to, like, at um, the individual level, it comes to a family level, communities, but also uh, a structural uh, level. And the Mexican government system uh, many of these uh, systems have been created, you know, through or been running through policies that are not necessarily being created from the perspective, from the indigenous perspective or to intentionally be serving the indigenous uh, people of Mexico, uh, um, but it comes from very colonial, um, you know, perspective mindset, well, similar to like the white perspectives when we speak in that similar kind of issues here. So it's, uh, exclusion um, is a, it's a big uh, problem that I think is very similar to uh, the experience that we, we, we encountered once we, we made it to the site of the borders as well.
0: Mm. Well, Sarah, thank you for joining us and, and sharing all of those insights. Our next guest is speaking with us from Los Angeles, California. Odilia Romero is the co-founder and executive director of Cielo And I'm going to go ahead and let her uh, pronounce that organization for us. She is Zapotec. Odilia, welcome back to Native America Calling. And and please give the full pronunciation of your organization for our listeners.
8: Uh, um, The name of the organization is Comunidades Indígenas en Liderazgo Cielo.
0: Thank you, Odilia, for for clarifying that and that beautiful pronunciation. And uh, listening to Arsenio talk a little bit about his life story and and having emigrated to the U.S. at the age of 21, and one thing I think it's important for all of our listeners to understand is that unlike in the United States where Indigenous people have federal protections, um, those don't exist in Mexico in the way that we think of them here in the United States. Uh, are federal protections for native communities in Mexico? Are those being advocated for?
8: Well, for example, the state that I uh, I am from, the state of Oaxaca, there is these process of autonomy per se that is protected by international law, the ILO one hundred sixty nine, and it is protected in the constitution. Yet is not being implemented. Um, So we are, in a sense, very autonomous when it comes to our land or territory um, back home. Mm. But we're not, there is not a process of federally recognized. Mexico talks about being multilingual, multicultural, but not the way that you are federally recognized here in the United States.
0: What sort of political influence do Indigenous people in Mexico have with regard to the government there?
8: Well, it's complicated. We do have some influence when it comes to our land, our territory. But politically, the political parties had been more of a harm to Indigenous communities, as not a benefit. So we are pretty autonomous in the sense that, like, we build our own roads. We have very uh, little support from the Mexican government. Most, for example, I'll give you an example. In my region, the roads were built by the migrants, by people reorganizing in the United States, sending money back home, and a little bit of the government, and people do, like, voluntary work to con- to build a road back home.
3: Mm.
0: Now, are there any specific uh, government policies there in, in Mexico that you have your eye on and, and are paying close attention to and, and want to share today with our listeners?
8: Well, there, there there, are some government policies that is supposed to protect us and is supposed to do a consultation before they have use of our land, but that doesn't happen because when it comes to consultation over your land for you to make an informed decision, they don't provide trained interpreters, for example, the Tren Maya, right? They went and did the consultation. They had somebody in the community volunteer to interpret. So that wasn't a full consultation. So now they've taken over the land and built the Tren Maya.
2: Hmm.
8: I don't know if that makes sense to you and your listeners, but they, we are, according to the law, In order to use our land, you have to have a consultation where people make an educated and informed decision about their land. But without language, that doesn't happen.
6: Okay.
0: So the interpreters are are absolutely critical then in in that interaction to make sure that that the community is fully aware of, of, of these interventions that the government Proposes. Odelia, um, in the Sonora Desert, I, I know that the Yaquis are protesting against waterways being redirected. And what are some other environmental challenges that you've been involved in or are taking note of there in Mexico?
8: Well, um, for example, in the Sonora Desert, uh, our, our, our good ally, uh, you know, um, Mario, has been at the forefront of the fight along with the, the Yaqui tribe. But at the same time, the government has created another group that has caused division between the groups, right? Um, And then the same thing, like um, on Thursday, uh, the land defender of um, Paso de la Reina and Tijalcepec was assassinated by these mining companies, right? So there's so much going on in indigenous territories in Mexico that people don't talk about. But uh, land defenders are constantly being harassed. They're being um, targeted, and we lost another one last week, um, mm. who was defending uh, his community on on um, for the mining com- from the mining company. So you could um, all follow Educa. That's how it's spelled: E-G-U-C-A, And they're constantly put out reports about the land defenders, about what's going on, what are they defending, and what are the risks that they are at. You know, everybody talks about Oaxaca, how beautiful it is, how amazing it is. Everybody talks about our regalia, our clothing, our food, but nobody's talking about the mining companies or the assassinated leaders last week or about the um um the struggle of indigenous Ismenios on the uh, in, in the isthmus of Oaxaca over the land. And I can't remember what are these things called. Um windmills. Uh, the windmill farms, you know, nobody talks about that when you talk about indigenous people of Oaxaca or of Mexico. Well,
0: Delia, the statistic that we shared at the beginning of the show, 54 activists killed in Mexico alone in, in 2021. Is anything being done to protect uh, some of these indigenous advocates that are in so much danger and peril there in Mexico?
8: No, nothing is being done. I mean, the government doesn't protect indigenous land defenders. If anything, according to Don Paley, you know, the government is not worried about the narcos, is not worried about the biggest threat to the Mexican government is the land protectors.
0: Mm. Jeez. Um, you're here, you're, you're in, in in Los Angeles, Odilia, and recently a, a member of the Los Angeles City Council Made some racist comments regarding both Black people and Indigenous people. What was your reaction to that?
8: Well, you know, these comments are normal. And the reason that Cielo exists is precisely to combat these racism, discrimination against Indigenous people. That's the, the reason we exist, you know. Uh, we advocate for language as a human right and interpret as a human right, not uh, a service. Because these comments happen every day. Like, we get called in our office. I need another Oaxacan speaker. Well, there's no such thing, right? Oaxaca is, Oaxaca is a state, and it has 16 indigenous groups with multiple variants of the languages. And I wasn't surprised because we've been calling out Latinidad, um, the founders of Cielo, Gianna Martinez, and myself for the last probably 20 years. But, you know, people thought we were crazy. Like, they were like, what are they talking about? You know, we're in 20. Uh, there's no racism against indigenous people, but these had kind of they got caught, mm-hmm. and it was put out to the world. But these conversations were happening way before they got caught, before the tapes were leaked. These conversations continue to happen as you and I speak right now, in, in in a government office, in a social worker's office, everywhere that, that there's people that are come from the the Latinx community. Because the one you migrate, like I migrated with my block sausage, that's what my family does. You know, I've migrated, migrated with my clothing, but you also migrate with your racism and discrimination and prejudice against certain groups, right? So we come, that comes with our, the package. So I, I was not surprised, but you know, uh, CLO has been calling it out. The founders have been calling it out for the last 20 years. And we're going to continue to call it out and then we're going to bring solutions to the table and suggestions of how we think things could change, right? So that's our work. That's the reason we exist.
0: Odilia, does Cielo work with any Indigenous activists uh, here in the United States from from tribal communities here in the U.S. or, or other activist Native groups here in the United States?
8: Uh, yes, we, we're getting, I think, um, uh, one of the things that divides us is the language, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you all don't speak Spanish. We don't speak English. <laughs> and we, we, don't, we don't know that our struggles are very similar, you know. Um, our relatives here are also fighting for their land. They're also trying to resist uh, the imposition, the violence from the government. Same thing is happening back home. We're fighting for our land. You know, we're being pushed out of our lands to become, to come to the United States and be criminalized. So those are the two factors that we don't have, the language. So that's why we think language is a like human right, because you don't know our struggles. We don't know our struggles. You don't know our existence. We don't know your existence. But as far as Cielo, we are learning and we're working. Uh, we've been very good um a relationship with the seventh generation who has house convening for indigenous people, Um Seven Generation Fund um, that has had convening with Indigenous people from all over the world that we're learning from each other's struggles and how similar they are, right? So we're we're learning. uh, We're building relationships. We did a campaign with a um, Native American fashion designer um, uh, to be in solidarity with the uh, the missing Indigenous murder women. Um, So we're doing things little by little, but language is a big factor of us not knowing each other's struggles.
0: Odelia, thank you for joining us today. And I know your time is limited. So really appreciate you joining our show and just sharing some of your experiences and some of your insights with regard to indigenous issues in Mexico, as well as some of the issues that, that you've learned about here in the United States. Our next guest is joining us from Tempe, Arizona. Alan Dillingham is an assistant professor of history at Arizona State University and author of Oaxaca Resurgent. He is Choctaw. Alan, welcome to the show.
7: Halito, Sean. Good to be here.
0: Halito, Alan. And um, I think it would help our listeners if, if you could help us out and describe some of the historical differences between governmental relationships between indigenous communities in Mexico as compared to here in the US.
7: Yeah, no, um, I'm happy to do that. And I really appreciated uh, Arsenio and Odilius, what they've shared with us. I do think that it is kind of a challenge for those of us who uh, kind of think about Native American uh, issues and politics in the United States to try to kind of wrap our heads around uh, Indigenous politics uh, in our Southern neighbor, right? Because there's lots of parallels, um, Native peoples, suffered the violence of conquest and the seizure of our lands, uh, and that takes place on both sides of the border. But the kind of subsequent political history does look a little bit different. And I think, you know, for U.S. listeners, probably biggest um, difference is that, you know, Mexico has a, a social revolution at the beginning of the 20th century between 1910 and 1920, and that revolution involves kind of mass mobilizations of rural people, including indigenous people, to overthrow a dictator and to create uh, a new government, and so the government that Mexico has today, you know, in 2022, is a government that was built out of a revolution at the beginning of the 20th century and a constitution that was created in 1917 that does uh, allow for, for example, communal holding of land, um, and so um, so the kind of basic structure of the Mexican state looks a little bit different. And I also think maybe in part because of demographic realities, um, but particularly in places like southern Mexico, um, there are regions and states, including Oaxaca, which is the state that we've been talking about, where indigenous people are, are the majority of the population, right? So kind of the model that we see in the United States of tribal lands or federally recognized uh, reservations uh, doesn't, um, in some ways, doesn't necessarily fit uh, the reality of a place which is majority indigenous and um, uh, as Odelia said you know that but that has maintained in some places certain control over communal lands and communal governing structures
0: well and it's interesting to think about because uh, again comparing what we have here in the United States with federal recognition and and, and tribal lands and, and land held in trust and And why specifically did that never evolve in Mexico? Is it because of the fact that there were just so many indigenous people spread out so far in the country? Is that part of it? Or was there more in terms of specific policy?
7: Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's a good question. I do think that it has to do with kind of some of these realities that I just described. Um, It also has to do with, you know, the, the... the constitution that Mexico has, right, which shapes federal law, guarantees all sorts of social rights um, that the US Constitution, you know, does not. And so people in the post-revolutionary period in Mexico, basically the 20th century forward, use that constitution as a way to kind of make demands on the state. Um, and so even the most kind of visible indigenous uprising in Mexico, um, which took place the signing of the North American, right before the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1994, which was led by the Zapatista Army of National Liberation and had its base in Mayan communities in southeastern Mexico. Even that rebellion, which actually used arms against the Mexican federal government, kind of invoked the Constitution. And basically, as Odilia was saying, uh, there are all these important rights in the Constitution that the government isn't respecting. So I think in that way, you know, some of the indigenous struggles in Mexico end up being about trying to force the government to uh, do what it says um, when it's not doing it. Alan,
0: we're going to have to take another break. Uh, Folks, just stay with us. We'll be right back.
5: This Native American Heritage Month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a health care professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash HBPControl. This support provided in partnership with HHS OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 211227 and CPIMP 211228.
0: You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time, folks, to join this conversation on the Mexican government's relationship with indigenous people. So what are you waiting for? Let's get some calls going. 1-800-996-2848. We're speaking with Alan Dillingham. He's an assistant professor of history at Arizona State University. Alan, uh, before break, you were talking uh, a little bit about the Mexican government and its relationship with indigenous peoples and we heard from Odelia earlier and she talked about how it's it's complicated it's challenging in in some ways the political parties there in Mexico do more harm than good, uh, especially with regard to the land and and these consultations which are supposed to occur, but they don't occur and Elena I want to ask you. do you see the Mexican government relationship with Native people? Has it evolved at all, or is it in any way moving forward in a positive way?
7: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it is important to think about how that relationship has changed over time. And certainly in response to Indigenous activism, you know, which has always been there, but I think grew even stronger in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s the Mexican government's official policies have evolved, right? And so as Adelio mentioned, you know, you have uh, there, you know, Mexico considers itself a multilingual and multicultural uh, uh, nation uh, ostensibly in terms of federal education policy. There's uh, um, schools uh, um, that are designed for Native children are supposed to teach um, bilingually in the Native language and in the national language, Spanish. So there have been important uh, legal transformations. And with the current president of Mexico in 20, who was elected in 2018, um, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, he very much kind of invoked native peoples. He had a native ceremony at his inauguration. He uh, asked for an official apology from the Spanish crown and the Vatican uh, for their role in the conquest of indigenous peoples. Uh, and he celebrated the 500th anniversary of the conquest of the Aztec capital, Tenochtitlan. Uh, and so, in many ways, he has a you know speaks a lot about indigenous people, but I think that that discourse is remains relatively superficial, right? Uh, so there's a lot of rhetoric, but there's not a lot of concrete policy respecting indigenous communities and the Trained Maya. Um, which is this big infrastructure project um, planned in is, in construction in southeastern Mexico in the Yucatan Peninsula, that's a clear example, which is a, a project that's led by Lopez Obrador, the president. He says it'll be completed in 2023, but has faced a lot of opposition from indigenous Mayan communities there uh, and environmental activists. And there's so there's a kind of superficial rhetoric, which I think is different than what we have in the United States, um, but it's not always matched. matched. Kind of with substantive policy changes.
0: Alan, any estimates as to how many indigenous people live in Mexico?
7: Uh, you know there are there are hundreds of indigenous uh, communities and nations, uh, hundreds of languages. I, I don't have a number um, off the top of my head but you know you have just in the state of Oaxaca you have over you know a population of over 300 uh, three million. Uh, many of those people are indigenous. Uh, a large number of those people, as Arsenio was sharing, uh, have been forced to resort to migrant labor, and so there's a, a kind of indigenous diaspora from Mexico that spans the country as well as the western United States, right? And so you would find indigenous Hawkins, you know, large communities from Southern California all the way to uh, Oregon and Washington and and beyond.
0: Alan, thanks for those additional insights there. Folks, we are talking today about Indigenous peoples in Mexico and the relationship there between the Mexican government and Indigenous communities. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number is 1-800-996-2848 if you have something to add or a question to ask regarding today's conversation. Our next guest is speaking with us from Los Angeles, California, Dr. Shannon Speed. She is the director of the American Indian Studies Center and Professor of Gender Studies and Anthropology at UCLA. She is a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma. Shannon, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you for having me on.
0: Shannon, you've worked for two decades uh, doing research on a variety of issues impacting Mexico's indigenous peoples. How have indigenous narratives such as autonomy, sovereignty, social justice, how have they changed or evolved during that time?
3: Um, Well, I think they've changed significantly, actually. Um, One thing that I'll um, just because you mentioned autonomy that I'll kind of add to what my colleagues here have already said about the differences between the United States and Mexico for indigenous people is that um, going even perhaps a little further back in history than Shane went, Um, there's a difference between Spanish colonialism and kind of Anglophone colonial world. And one of the significant differences is that there were never treaties with indigenous people in Mexico. And so, as we know, in the United States, um, those treaties today, you know, they don't form our sovereignty, which existed prior to European arrival, but they form the basis in, in U.S. law of our recognition as Um, domestic dependent nations, in other words, as independent political entities, which enjoy sovereignty, right? And there's a nation to nation relationship with the federal government that does not exist in Mexico. And that creates a fundamentally different kind of um, grounding or playing field from which um, Indigenous people can make their claims and their demands. Um, So in Mexico, Indigenous people, rather than struggling for sovereignty, struggle for autonomy. And you've heard. Um, all of the speakers so far talk about autonomy in one way or another in indigenous communities. Um, And I think uh, Sean noted a really important turning point, I would say in um, indigenous politics in Mexico, which was the Zapatista uprising in 1994. Um, And I think it's, I mean, it's significant because in and of itself, it was a significant movement, but it also, I think for the first time represented um, indigenous politics and indigenous struggle moving to the national level, right? So prior to that, in the decades prior to that, there was a lot of indigenous mobilization, but it was usually a local and around local concerns and issues. And the zapatista uprising with the declaration of war on the Mexican government, we really see indigenous politics go national. Two years after um, the Zapatista uprising in 1996, the Congreso Congreso Nacional Indígena, or National Indigenous Congress, is formed, which is a national indigenous political body in Mexico. Um, And, you know, in 2018, the Zapatistas would launch um, a candidate for president of the the republic um, who was indigenous, a Nahua person from uh, Tuxpan uh, on the um, Gulf Coast. So, um, you know, there have been shifts to a more national politics that I think are really significant here, even as local movements of the kinds that have been mentioned so far to resist mining, to resist extractivism, to resist the imposition of, of kind of folklore, tourism, et cetera, um, are continuing to, to go on. And the Yaki water struggle, of course, is emblematic of that. You mentioned that struggle.
0: Shannon, earlier we heard from o- Odelia, and she talked a little bit a- about that that lack of a, a nation-to-nation relationship uh, amongst the indigenous people in Mexico and the government, and, and and some 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 efforts there to maybe move the narrative in that direction. And, and do you see that as something that has a lot of traction amongst indigenous people in Mexico to establish more of a nation-to-nation relationship? Or is it something that ultimately w- would be beneficial for Mexico's indigenous populations? Perhaps it's not. What's your thought on that?
3: I think it would be very beneficial. I don't um, really have a sense of how much traction it has, either as kind of within organizing in indigenous communities or how much traction it's likely to gain nationally. One difference between the United States and Mexico I think that also hasn't come up, and um, And um, you had asked Shane about, I'm sorry, I call Alan Shane, (laughs) Alan, yuck, Alan, (laughs) about um, um, the uh, population of of Mexico's indigenous population, which is actually um, 23 million indigenous people in Mexico currently, uh, uh, you know self-identify. There are 68 language groups. um, And so that's 9% of Mexico's population. So by comparison, in the United States, we have about 6.5 million indigenous people. We're about 2% of the U.S. population. So indigenous people are a much larger percentage of the population in Mexico. And um, because of that, um, as Sean pointed, uh, Shane pointed, Alan. I'm going to call him Alan. As Alan <laughs> I didn't realize Alan, out, I was uh, such an. I, I didn't
0: realize I was such an expert on and indigenous history. there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you,
3: I, I it to you. So um, sorry, Alan. Alan's middle name is Shane, and um, that's why it doesn't matter. But um, as, as Shane mentioned, you know, with the Mexican Revolution and this kind of inclusive project of drawing potentially rebellious sectors of the population into the state project. Um, and indigenous people among them, um, you know, that um, remains kind of the dominant mode. And that's why we get a rhetoric, a political discourse of being pro-indigenous while not really getting any action, because indigenous people, as 10 percent of the population, are still very much viewed as a threat to the political structure in Mexico. And they okay. have as a significant kind of percentage of the population.
0: Okay, yeah, because they're what five times the size of of the indigenous population here in the United States. I'm gonna go ahead and have Arsenio chime in on this part of the conversation. Arsenio, this whole idea of of nation to nation relationships there, what's your thought on it? Do you think there's there's traction for that? And and ultimately, is that something that you would like to see uh, indigenous communities there in Mexico take a more proactive role in?
6: Yeah, definitely. I think that will be uh I, I think that uh, it's it's important that uh we move towards that direction. Um I don't know exactly if this is gonna be the answer to your question, but one of the things that I keep questioning um in terms of the whole thing about the imposed border, I think someone uh mentioned it that. Um that's that's something that was imposed, right? And and I think when that was division was created that the impact of breaking all whatever kind of relationship that already pre existed because we had to remember that indigenous people before those borders were migrating from one, you know, like across what's the continent of America. Um I think for me, uh in the work that we I, I do, I keep like thinking a lot about um how it's gonna look um a new narrative when it comes down to uh, immigration, because it's immigration continues to be a huge problem that really has a very unfortunate um, negative impact to the life of our families. A lot of our families are suffering, are um, breaking apart, uh, children are left behind. Like there's a lot of uh, h- um, harm caused by in- immigration policies. So, I honestly been thinking like we as indigenous people, this is like kind of a dream for me how it's gonna look that uh we we kind of like form or create a relationship with um you know across regardless the the border how that's gonna look how that uh is gonna look and uh, if we uh, form kind of like that um unity um mm-hmm. So I don't know, that's, that's a, a narrative that I'm, I'm really uh, interested uh, into um, looking into how that will be created. I think it will be, I think someone or like Odelia mentioned it already. There's a lot of similarities and issues that we both are facing as indigenous people, you know, because of this border. Uh, similar issues. I, I think it will be so, um, I think it's going to be like some point like a healing um, kind of process, it, we started like creating intentional circles of conversation and just creating our own narrative that was kind of like uh, shadowed or deleted um, through the okay. um, colonial process.
0: Okay. Thank you, Arsenio. And Shannon, earlier we talked about uh, how dangerous it is to be a political activist there in Mexico, and and such a huge number of them have been killed and, and there's no protections in place for them. What are some other political issues that we need to be really mindful of there in Mexico?
3: Well, I think some of them have already come up. Um, You know, certainly an overarching problem is ongoing racism in Mexico. And recently we saw um, sort of large scale mobilizations around this protesting racism. There was a case where a restaurant in Mexico City, two workers, came forward to publicly denounce that the restaurant was reserving the best tables in the restaurant for more white white-looking people, kind of overt racism. And um, there were, you know, public outcries and mobilizations around that. So there's growing consciousness that racism actually is a problem. Um, extractivism remains a huge problem and kind of the imposition of mega-projects like the Train Maya that um, that Shane mentioned. Um, and then violence sort of more generally. So there's the killing of activists, which is extreme, as you've already mentioned. But also, you know, there are myriad other forms of violence going on, right? So um, even Indigenous people who are not activists are often subject to violence in their communities or as they migrate. And so there's just um, virtually no accountability for that kind of violence. It's extremely unlikely that violence against an Indigenous person will, will even be investigated, much less that anybody would be prosecuted or held accountable. So I think kind of lack of accountability is a major problem in Mexico.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, do you see that changing a- anytime in the near future? More accountability? I wish I
3: could say, yeah, I wish I could say that I could see it changing. Um, you know, I think that there were high hopes around um, Manuel Lopez Obrador's presidency, that, you know, that, that things might change, um, and really we've seen that, in fact, as others have mentioned, um, not much has changed, and in fact, um, the violence has only increased under his presidency.
0: Okay. Anything else you'd like to add? Shannon, we're going to wrap up here in about another minute. Any, any other information, any other insights regarding Mexico's indigenous populations and its government?
3: Um, no, I think we've covered kind of uh, the, the, the gamut here, and um, I just really appreciate you covering this topic today.
0: Well, absolutely. And I appreciate you and all of our guests today, uh, Odelia Romero, Alan Dillingham, Arsenio Lopez, and Shannon Speed for updates and insights on policies and issues impacting Mexico's indigenous peoples. Join us again on Native America Calling tomorrow. We'll continue our Tribal Leader series as we discuss citizenship and identity. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean
5: Spruce. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at hobbstross.com. Program support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Probably Ruby by Lisa Bird Wilson, a novel about a Métis woman adopted by white parents who goes in search of her identity. More on this and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. Local tribal museums are the experts of indigenous histories, cultures, and values with the tools to educate the public. On the first National Tribal Museums Day on December 3rd, participating museums will offer no-cost admission, special exhibits, and live cultural demonstrations. Learn more at indian-affairs.org slash tribalmuseumsday. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this program.